Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I want to let you know about a few upcoming speaking engagements. On September 5th, I will be in Indianapolis, Indiana, for a one-day Leaders Forum on Sexuality and Gender. September 16th and 17th, I'll be in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, Indiana, talking about sexuality and gender on September 23rd and 24th. I'll be in Richmond, Virginia, talking about you guessed it, sexuality and gender. I'll be in New York City on September 27th and 28th. Uh, also, <laughs> talking about sexuality and gender, October 8th and October 9th in Colorado Springs and November 5th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All of these are events connected with the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which is why I'm talking about faith, sexuality, and gender. Uh, you can go to centerforfaith.com and check out these events in more detail, and you need to register for these events uh, through our website, centerforfaith.com. So if you want to attend one of these events, some of these events, all of these events, um, then you have to go and register. And I would highly recommend doing that sooner than later, especially for the events in September. They do tend to fill up. And in some cases, uh, there's only room for, um, you know, 250, maybe 300 people or whatever. And so they do, uh, sometimes they do fill up. So if you do want to attend these events, then I would highly recommend registering sooner than later. Okay, my guest for today, I'm so excited about this interview. Uh, her name is Mad uh, Madeline, Madeline Kearns. Sorry, Madeline. Madeline Kearns. Madeline Kearns is a, uh, she's a journalist, um, who's written some really provocative articles recently. She's a William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at National Review. She's contributed to The Spectator. Uh, she's been published in The Daily Telegraph, The Daily Mail, The Scotsman. She's been, um, she's appeared on BBC World Service and other news outlets, media outlets. She has a master's degree in New York University. I came across her articles because she has written, um, several articles on the political side of the transgender conversation. And one article in particular I have in front of me, I read it a couple times. Um, it's titled the trans child as experimental Guinea pig. And she is incredibly thorough in her research. She's a very good writer and she is courageous because she is writing things that go against um, what mainstream media outlets, some mainstream or many mainstream media outlets uh, say that you should, can, should or can write about. She pushes back against political correctness, but she does so very graciously and very thoughtfully. And so I was so stoked when I reached out to her on Twitter and said, Madeline, I don't know you, you don't me, but I don't know me, but I would love to talk with you on my podcast. And she said, sure. So um, I am so excited about this conversation. Let, let me just give one quick qualification on this interview. As you know, if you've listened to my podcast for any number of months or you know anything about my ministry, you know that I have a huge heart for LGBTQ people. I also have a huge heart for the truth of Scripture and what it says about sexuality and gender. Now, the transgender conversation is incredibly complex. It involves uh, theological conversations. It involves ethical conversations. It, it, it involves biblical studies and and understanding history and understanding interpretation and translation, uh, different translations of the Bible. It involves psychology. It involves psychiatry. It involves <laughs> politics and pastoral relationships and just on and on and on it goes. Now we can't, we can never do injustice to the entire complexity of this conversation by simply focusing on one slice of that huge pie, but we have to, it's like, it's inevitable. You, whenever you talk about transgender related questions, it's, it's not like you can cut, can cover everything all the time, every time you open your mouth and, and talk about it. So just to give you just, just to, just to preface this conversation, our specific focus in this interview is on the, pol some of the politics of, um, if I can say trans activist 
ideologies that have trickled its way all the way down into, uh, I mean, politics, but also like our school system and uh, media outlets and so on and so forth. Like that is a significant piece of this conversation. Now, so we don't talk about pastoral care. We don't talk about uh, psychological complexity. We don't talk about ethics or, or theology. We are just focusing on the, the political aspect of this conversation. Um, so for some of you that, that may be triggering. I, I, I know I've got some listeners who may struggle with gender dysphoria. Maybe you identify as trans and, and maybe all you've heard is the political side of this conversation. And so maybe, um, th- this might be a troubling conversation for you. So I just want to at least warn you ahead of time that we are simply focusing on one aspect of this very complex conversation. And yeah, I do believe it's a very, it's, it is a very important aspect of this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited about, um, I'm so excited for you to get to know, um, the Madeline Kearns. Okay, I am here with, uh, I'm just going to say, my new friend, Madeline Kearns, who is a uh, really interesting journalist, as I said in the introduction. Uh, Madeline, thanks so much for being on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure already. And I can tell from your accent that you are from New York. Is that correct? (laughs) (laughs) How did you guess? Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm from Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah, and currently living in in New York. Currently um, living in New York. Okay, yes. so I I came across your name. I, I would say maybe it might have been about six months ago, or maybe even sooner than that. The the one article that I have um, holding in my hands right now is uh, titled "The Trans Child as Experimental Guinea Pig." Um, I want to talk about that article, but you first got into uh, writing about gender, transgender related topics uh, in the wake of Lisa Lippman's, I'm going to say controversial study. I read the study a couple times. I, I felt like it was just straightforward scholarship. I thought it was well done, but produced a bunch of uh, backlash and controversy. You want to start there? Because that, that's kind of how you got into writing about transgender related topics. Give us the background on on that whole uh story and how it erupted absolutely so yeah so I was I just started my job at National Review and I'd written a bit in the past about academic freedom free speech that kind of thing especially as it relates to research and scholarship Mm -hmm. and I came across this Lisa Littman medical doctor research assistant at Brown University who published this paper on transgender youth and what she perceived to be a possible social and peer contagion, especially affecting, I think, young girls. And I wasn't really so much interested in the content of her study at that point, more the surrounding uh, issues. And I wanted to know why, for instance, the university had bowed to backlash because this study had offended people within the trans community, allegedly, and had removed it from their website. And it really, it, it just seemed to cause a huge stir, the study. And so I looked into it and I started putting at the end of my articles on anything to do with transgenderism. If you've been affected by this issue, please contact me. I'd be interested in hearing from you. And before long, my inbox was just flooded Mm. with messages from doctors, trans people, parents, Mm. uh, all sorts, really a very broad church of people who really were saying the same thing, which is, something's going on here and we're very scared and we're very scared to talk about it. And everybody was requesting anonymity, which yeah. now I kind of understand because having written about this, I've, I've, I've faced some of this myself. Right. Um, so, so it just, it just made me realize that there was a real need for serious reporting on this issue in a way that the mainstream media just simply is not yeah. fulfilling what what's the what was the fear? I mean, you you got a, a diverse array of you said doctors, uh, trans people, parents, gay people, whatever, uh, all across the political, religious, ethical spectrum. But the main concern was again just the inability to kind of raise questions about a particular narrative. Is that the gist of it, or? Yeah, I mean, different people had different reasons to be worried. So parents had reason to be worried because if they their child might be in the process of transitioning and if 
the child knew that they were not fully on board, that might damage the relationship. Doctors had reason to be worried because they could potentially run into problems professionally. Some doctors have, have been fired in, in some places. You know, teachers, similar thing, like using the wrong pronouns, that's enough to get you fired in Virginia, apparently. Wow. Um, and uh, so it was, it was mainly this sort of like political backlash that people were fearing. I suppose very much what had happened to Lisa Littman it would, would be a good illustration. I mean, there were people calling for her to be fired and calling her every name under the sun. And actually, if you, if you speak to her, she's just a very mild-mannered, progressively-minded person who has written fairly dispassionate research, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so, there was, so the, the, the fear was, was, was palpable, and, and I would say it's because of the, the, the politics of the issue. Right. I'm going to uh, set this up and I'll toss it to you to fill in, fill in the gaps here. But so uh, to, for our audience, Lisa Littman is a professor at Brown University, uh, no, you know, bastion for conservative. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not a conservative think tank, nor a religious institution. And so she, I mean, she, she would be a self-proclaimed, I mean, liberal, progressive, you know, um, she, but she did a study, the first study of its kind on, um, on teenagers who experience what psychologists have called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Now that's kind of a, when you hear that phrase, if you're not, if you've never heard that phrase before, you're probably like, you know, a deer caught in the headlights. It's like, what does that even mean? Well, there is a growing phenomenon. It's, it, it's growing. I mean, I'm, it, it, some people describe it as an epidemic of specifically teenage girls almost overnight identifying as trans with no prior evidence that they experience what psychologists would call gender dysphoria. And so this is, this is something that's kind of well known in the community that's, you know, deals with gender clinics and, and uh, gender identity or sorry, gender dysphoria. Um, so Lisa Littman just did a study on parents who have experienced this kind of uh, phenomenon and, um, and has shown, or, or you know, I don't, I don't want to say argued, but observed that there seems to be some sort of social possible social contagion that is playing a role in specifically teenage females um, questioning their their uh, sex or gender, how, however you want to frame it. Uh, l- let me, so that's how I want to set it up. Do you want to take sure. it from there and maybe unpack more of that Absolutely. study and why yeah, it was so, so fir- controversial? Fir- yeah, so the first thing to say about Littman's study is it, it really was a p- preliminary study. So the term rapid onset gender dysphoria is useful insofar as it's the first time somebody's seriously in an academic context come up with a with a name or a term to refer to this. It's not an official medical okay. diagnosis, nor did Littman claim it was. But as you say, she was responding to, um, she was observing rather, a, a trend. And now the, the data on, on uh, the transgender youth population is uh, lacking, uh, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. But we do know sort of anecdotally, uh, with, with looking at the cluster effect, that this is mainly affecting girls. In fact, in the UK, where there's only one main gender youth clinic, I think it's 4,000, there's been a 4,000% increase in less than a decade in the number of girls identifying as transgender and and seeking medical assistance with that. Um, So she'd obviously, she, she tapped into something that a lot of people were experiencing. And she Again, very carefully and as, as a first step, called, she called for further research. Uh, she just said, you know, could this be to do with the fact that a lot of these kids are spending a lot of time online? Could it be to do with the fact that a lot of these kids are in the same peer group who are yeah. coming out as trans? And and she said, you know, I think social and peer contagion is possibly, you know, one of many factors because as we know about gender confusion, it is very complicated and very case by case. And this was enough to really just inspire such fierce backlash. And I think the reason for that is that she had inadvertently undermined a key activist dogma, which is that gender identity, that is one sense of being male or female, is immutable and innate and cannot be questioned and cannot be challenged and within the context of the medical profession as a whole, that is more and more where we're headed with this mm-hmm. stuff. So I don't know if you saw, but the, the World Health Organization recently removed um, 
transgenderism or, or rather gender dysphoria from a list of mental disorders, the effect of that essentially is that we're moving towards a, a mode of self-declaration, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's not that um, you're feeling confused, it's that you are literally in the wrong body. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't really think of many other situations where we would have a person, let alone a child, yeah. go in uh, to a medical professional, say, here's what I am, here's what the issue is, here's what the treatment should be. Mm -hmm. And there being no objective measurement for diagnosis, then everybody going along with that. I mean, it really yeah. is extraordinary. And this is and, where the dividing line within, you know, people who I, who I would identify and, and, and I think they would self-identify as, you know, liberal or even progressive. But there's a big debate within that group of people who would be very much okay with adults transitioning if they want to, uh, identifying however they want to. But the big dividing line is when it comes to children, especially when we've seen such complexity surrounding this. I mean, if a 25, 30, 35 year old wants to make a decision, it's free country, do what you want. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean I have to embrace the ideology that you are, you know, um, embracing to make that decision, but I can, it's a free country, you do what you want and I should respect you and humanize you. But when it comes to children, um, and this is kind of, I guess, transitioning to this other article you wrote about, you know, the trans child as an experimental guinea pig. It, it is, um, th this is where within liberal communities, um, a, a massive debate, um, you know, and e even people like, a, a you know, um, J. Michael Bailey or Ken Zucker, Susan Bradley, some of the, the, you know, medical experts who would say, hey, look, if you want to transition, then we can help you with that. But for a child or a teenager to be kind of pressured into this or a parent of a child being pressured into it without any sort of alternative examination of possible um, ways forward. That's when I think uh, that that seems to be where the big, you know, crux is um, in this debate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, I think for most people, this would be a kind of fringe issue that they wouldn't really wade into. I mean, why would they affect or at least it used to affect such a tiny number yeah. of people. Um, so, you, you know, lots of people have reservations about sex change treatments and how you go about that, both within the medical profession and, and outside. But that's, you know, it's a, it's a relatively sort of contained debate, or at least it was. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. I think the, 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 the children is just where most people have to draw a line because I mean obviously it, it's sort of commonsensical if you have any experience whatsoever working with children you know that they change their minds frequently yeah. that they're yeah. very susceptible to influence that they're very susceptible to what their friends are doing they're very sensitive to trends and right. fashions and all that sort of thing and also no you know there's an element of like wanting attention yeah. <laughs> and things like that so I think it's just it's kind of for a lot of people a no-brainer that the conversation we're having about adults is just a completely different one yeah. than the one we're having right. about about kids. What, what kind of harm have you seen in in your uh, investigations and journalism and, and writings and everything? That some harm that has been done to children. Do you have like examples, or have you seen a lot? Of oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness, <laughs> how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's 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 quite grim actually. The more you look into it, so I mean, well, first of all, I would say that I've I've met young people who have had irreversible treatments um and and now regret it so i mean uh, really? a young woman who had her breast removed um i think either she was 17 or she was 18 i can't quite remember but there's there's um there's no hard and fast rule that that children in the united young people in the united states cannot have sex reassignment surgery so it depends on the state basically vermont I thought it new was, york it's not Hampshire. 18 or 16 or exactly i've, I've so been the age so the recommendation, the recommendation for the WPATH, the, the World Professional Association yeah. of Transgender Health, is the age of legal majority in any given country. But in the United States, that is 18, as, as you know. But it really depends on the state. So there are um, in New York, New Hampshire and uh, Vermont, I'm, I'm pretty sure, um, you can have sex reassignment surgery like whenever, like really 
there's there's no there yeah there's no limit and uh, and also there's we know in California there's studies been done of of girls as young as 13 having had double mastectomies that's their their healthy breasts 13. removed this isn't like a sensational like i mean this is actual no, no. this is <laughs> yeah um in fact you can look up the study any, anyone who's listening if if they if they don't believe me it's uh, by Joanna Olson Kennedy yeah and i think it's called chest reconstruction or something like that in, in transgender youth but yeah it's at least um yeah there's there's a, in that particular study i think there's two or three 13 year olds and four or five uh, 14 year olds that, that took part in the study um we know a, a, a dr mike laidlaw who's a great great guy on this stuff um out in california he requested a freedom information request for an nih study uh also partly happening in, in California where uh, the progress report shows that chil- children as young as eight have been put on cross-sex hormones and these are these are sterilizing uh, these are sterilizing drugs so um so I mean the, to answer your question in, in a more succinct way I'd say the harms are a uh, potentially uh, sterility uh, sexual dysfunction regret and an increase of, of gender dysphoria. Uh, I, I would say something that doesn't get talked about enough is the incredible damage this does to families mm. and to parent-child relationships. Uh, mm. If a child is told that their parent doesn't love them or support them because they're not jumping at the chance to turn them into the opposite sex. I mean, these these are all... The, so there's, there's the physical harms and then there's this, the, the social and psychological harms. It's really extraordinary and the other thing i would i would add to that is i mean oftentimes this is happening in the context of children who are already very very vulnerable so there is a disproportionate representation of autistic children Mm. in in those who identify as transgender um that's partly you know prone to black and white thinking and and that sort of thing there the the was a recent expose of again using this is an example because we don't have enough data in the, in the US at the moment. But in the UK, the main gender youth clinic, there was an expose done by the Times of London, which showed that some of the doctors there were complaining that some of these kids uh, had been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And some of them um, had parents who, who you know, were, were perceived to be actually like sort of homophobic. So in a way, it was a sort of strange... Um, rather literal conversion therapy where the little boy is very effeminate and we don't want him to be homosexual so we'll turn him into a girl and actually you know in countries like iran uh that is actually how they deal with homosexuality is by making transsexualism uh an option yes so there's um I mean, the harms are, are, are just endless. So really. real, um, real quick, I, I, I can't let the last point go because that's fascinating. You're saying that it's yeah. in a very roundabout way. It's all, some people would encourage transitioning for their child. And it's almost stemming from an internalized homophobia. <laughs> I don't yeah, want them to be absolutely. a gay man. I, so I'll I turn them a, into a woman. Yeah. Wow. Yes, I think I think that's a huge part of it. And, that, and actually, you know, that that can be. So it can also be, you know, the person's family and environment can be sort of homophobic and think this is a way of dealing with it. But it can also be the person themselves. I mean, they might not have reconciled the fact that they are sexually attracted to the same sex or whatever. And they think, well, wouldn't it just be easier if I were right. um a boy or girl and then you know these are these are very complicated things and I, I don't I don't I don't want to suggest that it's a it's a sort of like very simple thought process, right. but it's certainly that has that has been picked up by by quite a number of clinicians um yeah. and and also you know we know historically that that a lot of transsexuals um are especially transsexual females so that's female to males are um are gay or are, are right. sexually attracted to the same sex so so yeah a, a very vulnerable population already right. i would say what what do you um what do you make of the lack of free speech, academic freedom in this conversation? I mean, in, in most other areas of academic research, scientific study, you know, there's um, there's platforms and avenues to have different perspectives. And, you know, um, I mean, in this conversation, there's there seems to be such an inability for people to have the freedom to just even 
question out loud or raise hard, question, hard questions against a certain kind of narrative. I mean, I, I can I just assume you would say yes. That's very much yeah, true. Yeah, no, and- I, I would. I would absolutely agree with that. And I, I'm to develop the point. I, I'm going to give the most charitable interpretation of of this. Yeah, as possible. Good. Um, because you know, conservatives love nothing more than to harp on about, right, about right, how they don't yeah. get chances. <laughs> but um, but what I what I think it is ultimately is that this is essentially a, like a, like a philosophical point, right? And as with with much of of the LGBT movement, but especially with the T, there is there is something fundamentally ontological about it, right? It's how a person defines themselves. So, right. you know, Christians or Jews or whatever would define themselves as, you know, created by God and or whatever. And and I think for for the, the the transgender philosophy, it's it's kind of like a it's like a form of like Cartesian dualism yeah. where you know the, the mind and the body. And so, by disagreeing with the, somebody's proclaimed gender identity, you're actually challenging them in a very existential way, um, and uh, and sort of not giving them as this is how it's perceived uh you know any right to exist right right um, denying their existence denying their humanity now of course that that's not really how the other side see it because it's like i might not accept that you're a female mm-hmm. but i still think you're a human being with all the same right. rights and privileges and dignity as everybody else but I, I just don't agree that you're a female and this only actually becomes a problem when you start expecting to be treated like a female right. in certain situations um and the way the way I find it quite useful to frame this point, um, without like resorting to conservative cliches, is let's imagine that a Christian and an atheist want to have a debate. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, that's that's already a big thing. Like they want to have a debate yeah. about the existence of God. And let's say that the Christian um says to the atheist, well, it's absolutely fundamental to me as a person that you understand that I consider myself to be made in the image and likeness of God. And the atheist says, okay, I understand that. That's fine. He said, okay, but you have to like treat me the way I understand myself. So that means you have to refer to me as a child of God and you have to, and you have to refrain from anything that I could consider to be blasphemy. So you're not allowed to suggest for a, for a second that God doesn't exist because otherwise that's like very offensive and I couldn't possibly, you know, yeah. I think you would quickly find that that, right. that debate would not be a debate. In fact, right. it would be impossible right. to right. actually have any sorting, sort of meaningful disagreement, any sort of exchange of views. And that's how I feel uh, the transgender thing has has turned out. It is a it's a very strongly held philosophical view about one's personal identity. There are many of those out there. There many of them are very interesting right. and worthy to discuss. But it's not allowed to be challenged because in this scenario, to just borrow from the analogy I just set up, you know, if you use the wrong pronouns, you have challenged my existence. If right. you suggest that I might not really be truly um, the, the sex I identify with, you have challenged my existence. And therefore, we're not going to debate about it. You're just going to yeah. F off yeah. <laughs> and get out of my life. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's, that's actually what's, what's driving it. I, I would say that the, the, the transgender philosophy is fundamentally religious. That's the irony hmm. of it. Hmm. No, I you would know? agree with that. I mean, I... Um... I often talk about, so I, I, I was raised in, I would say, strong fundamentalist Christian environments growing up, and, and now I'd consider myself much more moderate <clears throat> of a Christian and, and um, a centrist, I would even say, politically, religiously, and, and in so many ways. But what I've seen is the farther you go across the spectrum from religious fundamentalism to uh, you know, hyper-radical progressivism, the posture is almost the same. It's just right. the the, mm-hmm. the assumptions are different, but the tone, the 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 rhetoric, the way you um, can't get along with anybody that doesn't accept your whole ideological package. It's almost exactly identical. Identical, you know. And, and as a centrist, I get I'll get attacks from both the far right and far left. And sometimes I want to, 
you know, post the tweets next to each other because they are almost identical <laughs> in the yeah, tone. No, that, that would be a useful exercise. It's it, it's fascinating. Yeah. So so when you said it's it's in a in an ironic way, a very let's just say non-religious ideology or non-religious community is fundamentally religious in in the way it mm. forms and maintains um, its ideology. I, w- I would very much very much agree with that. Are are you familiar with um? The work of Jonathan uh, Haidt. Haidt um, yeah, do you know he was my um, he was my academic supervisor what? for my no research. Way. I'm <laughs> so jealous. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, so him and um, I mean, in his in in the Righteous Mind and also his recent book with George Lukianoff, you know, they talk about especially the the last book, um, the um, uh, the coddling of the American mind. Mm. Uh, have you read it? Are you familiar with it? Or? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I um. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, in my final year at NYU, I was, um, I did an independent study under him while he was like trying to finish that oh book. Oh my so gosh. I, okay. I, so I, I, I read it before, before anybody oh did. Oh my <laughs> word. I'm so ju- That, that book, uh, I, I think it was the most significant book I read in 2018. Um, and yeah, I, and I read great. a lot of books, but I mean that, that, I think that what they're saying in that book is very intertwined with this whole conversation, primarily that there has been a massive rise in this um, culture of, uh, of, of, of safetyism, as they call it, that uh, people are no longer just offended at like genuine hate speech um, or bullying, you know, but actually just an idea that they disagree with is now seen as offensive and possibly suicidal. And, and like you're saying, if you, if you mispronounce somebody that that person is now, going to claim you're you're increasing my suicide rate and everything and um yeah can you can you maybe well since you <laughs> you're so familiar with with height and his whole work i mean can you expand on that because i think that that is a significant piece to this would, would you agree with oh that? sure i mean so I'll, I'll actually start with it with it with an example so when we were um when i was being trained as a teacher so as, as i was saying to you i briefly trained as a teacher before coming out to the states which i did in 2016 uh, to nyu I, uh, we had, we had training on how, how to teach transgenderism to children. So this is children as young as five, although I was working with high schoolers and we had, and I remember flicking through the guidebook and in the guidebook, there was a list of things that could potentially be transphobic bullying. So it's not just bullying because in my book, bullying is bullying. It doesn't really matter why transphobic bullying. And, and under the list uh, were, were things such as gestures, looks, non-verbal communication and, and it just went on and on and on and I just I just thought my, to myself this is terrible because we are going in and we are saying to people here's a group of people who are really different and really oppressed and everybody's out to get them and they're all miserable and they're all thinking of killing themselves and don't do any one of these things otherwise like you're going to be contributing to that and I was thinking like like it's, it's as if like people are, are being taught well they are being taught and this is Height's point to kind of think pathologically and expect offense at every turn and then and then it becomes obviously a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you live like that you will be miserable yeah because yeah. life is full of slights and rejections and disappointments and people also saying meaning annoying things mm-hmm. and you know the, the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy which yeah. height and, yeah. and Lucian lay out in their book is to teaching people to overcome anxiety and depression by thinking through and past that stuff mm-hmm. so by thinking actually do you know what like nobody else has the power over how I think and therefore nobody else has the power over how I feel. Right. And that is very empowering yeah. and leads to a well-rounded, resilient human right. being, adult. But if you teach to to kid, that to kids, the opposite, uh, you end up with, with, with essentially just prolonged adolescence yeah. where universities become these dangerously insular places where where people just don't grow up and are completely unprepared 
for the real world. Yeah. And I think the difference is, because I, I want to acknowledge that there are people that for whatever reason, biological, maybe it's, um, maybe it's something in their past, maybe they've been through so many past traumatic experiences that, you know, certain statements or words could, could genuinely, and I'm going to use the phrase, you know, trigger uh, a past experience. And, and that could be really significant. I think the biggest difference though, is instead of acknowledging that that is a, a unhealthy place to move from now, ever since 2014, 15 as Lukianov and height recognized that now we're like encouraging it and almost validating it and, and, yeah. and pushing pe- people r- rather than recognizing that if a, a slightest little comment triggers something dramatic from your past that, I mean, any psychologist worth his or her salt would say, okay, that, that's an unhealthy place. We need to move you to a more healthy place where right. you can hear a, a comment and, and, and be able to recognize that this person is not out to kill me, whatever they're, they're not, they didn't right, mean it or exactly. whatever. Now, instead of recognizing that let's that that's an unhealthy place to move from, now we're trying to keep people there, right? I, th- I think that's exactly. The and I difference. think the, the other phrase he uses in the book a lot is concept creep, yeah. right? So we used to, for for example, like trauma, the word trauma, right? So we used to reserve post traumatic stress disorder for just the absolute worst things that I think the way it was defined in medical literature was as something that is so rare and has such a profound effect on like negative effect on a human being that any person who experienced this would be traumatized right Right, would would have this this reaction and so the examples historically were things like war or rape or you know um these types of things Whereas now it can be like, you know, people claiming they have PTSD because I don't know, like on social media, somebody said something, you you know, it's just this kind of stuff. And, um, and it does become like this, this feedback loop, right? Where you, you, you're telling yourself like these things and then it does become true. You know, it becomes true because um, people around you do start treating you differently because the thing is we do treat each other largely on on the basis of how we act right yeah. so if somebody's very reserved and quiet and like not really like being themselves because they've told themselves all the, this negative stuff that person is going to find it more difficult to make friends and socialize and it becomes this like feedback loop so mm-hmm. i think when you combine that with the philosophical extreme extremism yeah. I, w- I was outlining before that's a pretty toxic yeah. mix <laughs> yeah 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 well, Madeline, where do you see oh, i've got so many questions um i want i'm going to throw this out and i want to come back to it because i have another okay. question i want to ask but i want to i do want to talk about the suicide the role that suicidality plays in this whole conversation the 41 percent that we that we hear sure. um but i want to first of all ask your opinion where do you see this going because it seems that in the last couple years, you know, I don't know, five five years, that how do I say it? a particular ideology has outpaced even like scientific research, mm-hmm. um, and has become dogma in a lot of public school systems and, and policies and everything. And and yet, I do see a number of people, a growing number of people, like John Haight and others, questioning the wisdom behind that, or Stephen Pinker and other like really. Again, not not conservative, you know, thinkers, but just yeah. highly respected intellectuals that are saying, I think we need to put the brakes on some of this stuff and shutting down free speech in this really important new conversation is not healthy. Do you see this ideology, okay, um, that, that would feed into some maybe, let's just say, trans activism and so on, um, lessening or or becoming more influential i i'm, I'm sorry i'm not not communicating this very yeah, clearly no, but i think no, you know no, what I, I'm, I understand like, exactly where are we going to be um, in five to ten years in this sure so it's it's a great question it's in fact the question isn't it and i have two minds about it because i think on one level i'm actually pretty hopeful that this is going to run its course and it's probably going to run its course quite soon um, and the reason for that is twofold the first is that it affects too many other things. So I've spoken earlier in this podcast about the 
effect it has on gay, gay people and especially mm -hmm. gay young people. Um, it also, you know, if you want to go even further into the the um, gay community, I hate saying like community because yeah, yeah. I think it's so patronising, but you know <laughs> what I mean. Um, like if you speak to like lesbians, as I have done, you find that a lot of them are very upset because heterosexual men who become transgender who haven't had any physical changes, so they still have all their male equipment, um, they, they then identify as lesbians and expect lesbians to be their dating partners and right. lesbians are not attracted to males by <laughs> definition. So it causes, les, lesbians I've told you have said it, it's introduced a kind of rape culture Huh. Into into their communities, um, so there's like the it touches on on gay politics. It touches on uh, feminism. You know, I mean, women's yeah. sports yeah. is just a joke. Like yeah. it's a really bad joke. We all know it. It's just yeah. so obvious. It's right in front of our eyes. Um, but more seriously, you know, women's prisons and yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, it touches on uh, parental rights. Mm -hmm. It touches on uh, the right to conscientious objection in the medical profession. Um, I mean, the, the the list goes on. You know, mm -hmm. teachers, like whatever. But the but the but the other thing that it does, and this is why I'm sort of hopeful, is that it is affecting children in a way that is so profound and life altering that if in five to 10 years or however long it takes, somebody comes forward with a lawsuit uh, and says, this was done to me when I was young and I was obviously unable to give informed consent to this. And I'm obviously not transgender because I've now realized that mm -hmm. like this was the wrong thing. And so that means I'm not transgender. So there was a mistake made. I think that could really shut down the medical side of this. Mm. You could really shut it down because, I mean, that's, that's happened to basically every medical scandal. That's always how it ends up, right? It's not an issue that's resolved in the culture. It's an issue that's resolved in the courts. Mm -hmm. Now, having said all that, so there's reason for hope. Um, this political issue, this philosophical issue is not going away. Okay. This is only going to get more and more aggressive and it's only going to get more and more um, inventive as we have advancements in technology and you know the transhumanism and all, all that yeah, stuff with yeah. philosophy like that it is going to just keep going and so and so the question is where next where do we go next so I will share with you something somebody said to me which I don't I don't know exactly why I make this but I thought it was so interesting um, that I'm, I'm going to share it with you. And okay. that is that somebody said to me, if a child can consent to sex change, why not sex? Hmm. Hmm. I don't really have an answer to that. And I think one of the things that really does worry me, and this is a concern I, I share with a lot of people on the left, is the sexualization of children using gender as a, as a mask, mm. right? So the, the whole drag kid thing, I don't know if you're familiar with Desmond is Amazing and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, is that where the caravan is headed? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Some people think it is. I hope not. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something to watch out for yeah. and to be very clear that predators will always use anything they can to get access to children. And that's not to say that, you know, trans people are pedophiles, not, right. not at all. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that when you create a, a community or a place that's focused on the body, that's focused on genitals and all the rest of it and you through through political force you cut out all of your normal safeguarding procedures mm -hmm. um, and nobody's allowed to question it because if you do then how dare you you have just you know homophobia transphobia or whatever right. then you are you're really really asking for trouble right right um and i think that's that's uh, that's something a lot a lot of people are very concerned about but scared to talk about yeah yeah no that's good no, i appreciate that and it, it is hard to predict you know which way it will go you know i 
the one thing that's kind of confusing again is here you have, or even you have like, um, you know, some, a lot, a lot of feminists speaking out again, you have, you have liberal feminists speaking out against, uh, liberal, um, say trans activists, whatever. And it's, yeah. uh, there, there's few other conversations that I've seen where you see people within this, a, a similar kind of moral camp, generally speaking, political camp, generally speaking, who would both be, you know, profusely anti-Trump and <laughs> maybe even anti-religion right, yeah, yeah. and yet having two fundamentally different kind of uh, worldviews or ideologies in this conversation. I'm, I'm kind of shocked. Well, I, I have been, I, I have to admit, I mean, again, as a, as a evangelical Christian in listening to a lot of uh, radical feminists, or I'll just call them feminists. I don't think they're all that radical. They're just, consistent feminists, some of their concerns on not all trans people, but a particular trans ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's pretty, to me, it, it just, it does make a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering kind of, I just haven't seen a really good response to some of their concerns, but probably just to sum it up that, you know, uh, gender, masculinity, and femininity have been used by male patriarchy for how many hundreds of years to oppress yeah. women, and yet some versions of a trans ideology, again, not every single trans person or people with gender dysphoria, but a particular ideology, are basically resurrecting these same yes. stereotypes. Yes. Absolutely. And the entire ideology rests upon a very distinct thing called masculinity and femininity. And if you are a, a female bodied person who is more masculine, then you're actually a boy ontologically, but all you're doing there is relying upon these old yeah, stereotypes. Yeah, no, exactly. So if you, if you play with trucks, you're a boy. <laughs> and if you play with dolls, you're a girl. Yeah. And I mean, you also see this with the male to female. I have feminists who are very, very offended at male to female transgender people or transsexual people who basically like go around looking like porn stars. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like massive breasts, <laughs> and, like blonde wigs and like, you know, in fact, um, Douglas Murray, the, the British writer made, made this point once where he said that there was, there was a, <laughs> a panel of some, some like, I think it was BBC or something that might not have been, but some British TV panel of people. And there was a transgender woman on, and as she's talking, she gets out her knitting and she starts knitting. Oh, wow. And, you know, like, did we, did we really, <laughs> like, campaign for the vote and, like, wow. you know, equal rights and equal pay and all yeah. that stuff so that um, a male can identify as a female with his knitting on TV. Yes. Resurrecting the 1920s image of what a female should be. It's just... it's. It's actually like some of it is, I mean, it's not funny because people's lives are at stake sure. and, and a lot of these people have had very difficult lives. But but there is, if you just purely look at it in terms of the ideas and the performance of it, there is something very, very comical about yeah. the whole thing. Uh, this is why it, it seems, I, I, I'm going to assume, I'm trying to be... I'm trying to get, give the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume that I'm, I must be missing something because to me it seems so blatantly obvious that, again, certain forms of, of an ideology is resurrecting and depending upon old 19, you know, 20th century stereotypes. That, and, and so I understand why feminists are so up in arms over this. Um, I just don't – maybe I'm missing something because it seems so blatant to me and I haven't seen a really good counter response. So, um, no, I don't, I don't think you are missing <laughs> anything because, because the response is shut up, you bigot. Yeah, I mean, I think that really just tells you everything you need to know. Like, the, yeah. there isn't actually a good response to any of this stuff. So, so you either get shut down or you get baffled yeah. by by just sheer outlandishness. Yeah, yeah, slurs and everything. So, okay, so the argument is, you know, shut up, you bigot, and then the the next phrase would be, you're you're increasing the suicide rate by just opening your mouth. Right. You know. Can you, do you have any thoughts on the suicide rate? And let me just, I guess, qualify this. I have several friends who do experience intense gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. who on a day-to-day battle or day-to-day basis battle intense dysphoria that, and they would struggle with suicide ideation. I mean, this is no, no joke. Now the friends that I'm thinking of, uh, most of them at least would, still identify by their biological sex, but they would turn right around and say, for whatever reason, 
this is a a minute by minute, hour by hour battle to accept that. But they they are so so they're not embracing the ideology. Right. They are experiencing the the profound discomfort that some people, for whatever yeah. reason, experience. So so I don't um, I um I I just want to acknowledge, empathize with, and do whatever I can to help somebody in that situation. Sure. I mean, there's, yeah. Well, but I guess leading up to my question is it does Uh feel in some cases that suicidality can become, not always, but can become weaponized to promote an ideology where I'm not allowed to raise any sort of ontological, philosophical, anthropological, (laughs) scientific questions uh, because whatever you say, you're going to increase suicidality. I'm like, well, suicidality is way more complex than that, first of all. And if I just simply raise questions about a particular mm. ideology. And if that increases suicide, then there's other things going on that shouldn't increase suicidality. So anyway, all that to say your thoughts or research, what you found in the suicide rate. Sure. So for, yeah. So the first thing to say is that there are lots and lots of mental health conditions, which increase your likelihood for suicidality. Mm. Uh, so many, and there isn't actually to my knowledge and to the knowledge of Kenneth Zucker, who, who told me this, um, there's not really any evidence to suggest that it's any higher than in, in necessarily, you know, um, in among gender people with gender dysphoria than say people with depression or people with mm. eating disorders or whatever. I mean, it, it would really depend on the study and the sample size and so many other things, but there isn't anything by definition, that makes this vulnerable population any more vulnerable than any other vulnerable population, if that makes sense. So that's the first thing to say. Interesting. Okay. Having said that, having said that, uh, suicidality is uh, is a is a problem within the sure. within the within people groups of people who have uh, gender dysphoria, and as is always the case with suicide, you have to be very very careful about how you address that because. As we know, if you talk about suicide in a certain way in the media, if you advertise it in a certain way, then then you actually increase the likelihood that other people are going to commit suicide. So I think, first of all, that there is a very dangerous thing going on right now, which is, as you alluded to, the politicization of suicide, which may actually be counterproductive right. and giving more people the idea of killing themselves as a, as a solution to, to this particular distress um, by, you know, the way, the way we talk about it and the way we obsess about it. But the second thing I would, I would say is that somebody feeling suicidal is actually, a, is actually a separate problem from like the mental health problem that they have. Okay. So it's, it's not, you you don't like if, if I had an eating disorder and I and I wanted to um I, I re- was refusing food and I and I was suicidal and I said, you know, like I, I'm gonna kill myself. Like th- you don't then say, well, we're gonna just let her continue right. to refuse food because otherwise she'll kill herself. Like it, it's it's understood that first of all I need I need help for this physical thing and then I need help for this psychological thing and the two are interrelated. But it, but we don't conflate the two, and we don't right. use my psychological state as a reason to intervene or not intervene, right? And so I think again that would suggest very strongly to me that the the suicide thing is politicised in order to achieve a certain outcome, yeah. which if it weren't for suicide, there is absolutely no evidence. And no rationale that would justify that intervention, wow. right? So yeah. if, if if you're saying that like we need to remove this 13 year old's healthy breasts, and I say no, we don't, and you say, well, she's going to kill herself, right? Right. Let's let's imagine that that I managed to like make the counter argument and persuade that person that like that's not a justification for this intervention, and in fact that's not even true. What's what were the other reasons for her having her breasts removed? You know, yeah. like what 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 are the what is the other rationale? So I think what the suicide thing does is it clouds yeah. the emptiness of of the the argument and the emptiness of, of so much 
of this research. Well, it, and it takes the place of maybe a, a, a scientific or even ethical argument for, you know, sex reassignment surgery or transitioning or, or even social transitioning. Um, and it kind of prevents, and again, I'm not saying, I'll, I'll say this one more time and I'll stop, you know, <laughs> repeating myself, but um, I, I'm not saying to every person who is either suicidal or concerned about suicide in the trans community is, is doing this. Okay. Um, but it, it does seem at least in some cases it is being weaponized um, because out of a motivation to proje- to right. embrace yeah, and yeah, project it's the, it's the an motivation ideology. for a certain treatment. But, but the other the other thing to add, of course, is that there's a very serious conversation to be had, and, I, and it's not one I necessarily want to have because I I'm very conflicted about it, and I and I feel like I haven't read enough about it. But there's a very serious conversation to be had about whether this treatment that they're suggesting. Um, increases or decreases the likelihood of suicide. That's that's the other big thing. So um, Dr. Paul McHugh, who I know is a a notorious figure in in certain circles, although I don't really understand why I I had lunch with him a couple of months ago and I just thought he was the sweetest person I'd ever met. Anyway, he he shut down the sex change surgeries at Johns Hopkins in in the late 1970s because of this very reason. He said, no, we just don't have the evidence to suggest this is helping. Um, Now, I've met trans people who say it was life-saving and it did help them and and I have no reason to to not believe them. Um, But but it's not to say that that's going to work for everybody. So so not only is a suicide argument a kind of political tool, it's also... It also logically doesn't necessarily follow, right, right? And and so there's, you know, it's one of those things though that when you have this um, big emotional issue that you can just throw out there, and then uh, when somebody wants to respond as I want to respond, you know, it's actually, um, I agree, it's an emotional issue, but it's actually like much much more complicated than that. Right. Sometimes there's just like for whatever reason, there's just less of. Uh, there's just less of a response to, to that right, than, right. than the first one. And, so, and also, I mean, according to suicide.org, I think that's fairly authoritative, I think, maybe. I think 90% of suicides are a result of an undiagnosed mental, mental health condition. Right. Um, and um, a high percentage, I don't, I don't know the exact percentage, but a high percentage of people who do have gender dysphoria or identify as trans have a co-occurring mental health Condition right, you mentioned, right. so, I mean, yeah, autism. So that's the other thing, yeah. The autism the rate is anywhere from 50% to, I just heard Susan yeah. Bradley, who's the world-renowned expert on gender dysphoria in children, been doing research for 40, 50 yeah. years. She said in a podcast, she said, I'm almost convinced that close to, she even, I think she even said 100% <laughs> of, yeah. of people with gender dysphoria would also be on the autism spectrum. Right. Um, and then there's there's many other things going on, or even this this is what was so troubling with the Lisa Littman study, not with her study, but with some of the quotes in that study of parents taking their child who came out as trans as a teenager and going to a you know a counselor a gender clinic, and within thirty minutes they're being kind of prescribed hormones or whatever cross yeah. hormone therapy, but then the parents like wait a minute this person has been, my child has also been sexually abused they have had eating disorders right. they've had right, depression right, right. and the counselor's like i don't need to hear any of that like they almost don't want to hear all yeah. of these other traumatic things that probably have to are i'm just going to say i'm just you know probably might also contribute to the suicidality in your child but oh, well, just, of course they do yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's yeah. so I, I again this is where um not in every case but in some cases when i hear people seemingly weaponizes suicidality it almost i almost wonder if they actually care about the suicidality of the person if they are yeah. going to plug their ears they don't want to listen to any sort of other thing yeah. going on that might also be contributing to that which yeah i would yeah just to summarize i would just say that the suicidality thing is is uh, the way the activists talk about it is a a gross oversimplification mm. of an incredibly complicated issue which is related to as you point out many many other issues and it is be a political tool, yeah. um, which is counterproductive, right? Because in trying to help, you know, let's just assume that they have the best motives in the world, like in trying to use this as a political tool to help trans people, you could actually end up mm-hmm. having the opposite effect right? Um, and making people think that the world's out to get them. And if people don't accept 
their yeah. gender identity that you know they, they are likely to kill themselves and gosh why don't i just kill myself right. um so yeah so i would just i would just say like it, it's um it's very unfortunate i think yeah. the way we talk about suicide have you have you received I mean, I'm going to say like death threats or backlash. I mean, you have to have received a lot of hate mail. Yes, because... <laughs> um, I mean, death threats, I've only had one, um, which I have to say, um, these could be famous last words. I hope not. Uh, it was quite thrilling, actually, because I felt like, gosh, I'm I'm important enough to get a death threat. <laughs> when does that ever happen? <laughs> anyway, I felt like I'd made it. You're an you know, optimist, the- aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> these, these are these are words I, I I would really regret if I was yeah. ever faced with this situation. Sorry, I, I don't mean to trivialize it. Um, uh, but I have also, you know, I get I get a lot of like emails and and uh, you're a horrible person. You're this. You're that. Um, um, what one person actually this 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 was quite clever. Had written me a long email and the, and the first twenty words were like very flattering, and then and then they wrote and that was enough to get you to read. And I thought that's very clever. That was very clever. Well done. Appe- appealing to my vanity in this way, um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, no, I, I I mean I do get backlash, but you know I mean ultimately if you if you, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Uh, so um, yeah. whatever. I you mean, know you know what you're getting into, and you know that you're poking. You know, the bear, it's kind yeah. of water off a duck's back at this point because I. For for every message like that I get, I also get um, yeah. a lot of really very encouraging and uh, rewarding messages from from all sorts of people, and also like you know sometimes I get messages from people who I I don't necessarily agree with, but we have a yeah. very interesting exchange. So, yeah. trans women uh, recently emailed me saying, you know, sometimes I like your pieces, and sometimes I think you. Um, you know, there's an invective in, in, in your prose and that sort of thing. And anyway, it was it was a very constructive back and forth and mm-hmm. very cordial and uh, worthwhile. So, um, so yeah, but it's fine. It's fine. Have you gotten positive responses from trans people? Mm-hmm, yeah, but they tend to be the kind of old school transsexuals. Um, so people who, you know, have been transitioned for a long time and are equally concerned about the kids. That, I mean, my, my main issues really are, as I say, like um, with the children and, and yeah. also I do write about how it affects women. Um, okay. Uh, and so, so yeah, I've, I've had, um, I'm in contact with quite a few actually. They're, they're very helpful to run things by because like, obviously I don't, um, I don't want, I don't want to sort of make enemies and make right, people feel right. uncomfortable. I mean, so, sometimes it's expressing things um, fact, factually and, and yeah. truthfully does make people uncomfortable so I'm not going to let that stop me but it certainly right. isn't my intention to do that and if I can I reach um, as broad a church as possible and if I can speak in the voice that reaches the furthest I would like to do that yeah. so that's yeah. what I try to do. Madeline thanks so much for being on the show we're coming up on an hour here and um, I've taken so much of your time so thanks so much for being on Theology and Raw. Where can people get a hold of you? You've got a website right? Sure I have a website um madelinecairns.com and then on twitter i'm just madeline cairns and it's madeline with three e's so that's m-a-d-e-l-e-i-n-e and cairns is k-e-a-r-n-s i also do that because like at starbucks you know they're like a meaty Maddie, muddy. <laughs> I'm like, okay, look, <laughs> just and, give me the cup. I'll write it myself. <laughs> and uh, you, how often do you write? I mean, uh, articles is it like once a month, several times a month, or? Uh, well, no. I'm. <laughs> this is a really good question. So, um, I try and write uh, two articles a week okay. for online. But the the big, so the one you had in your hand is a sort of longer term project. So that's like a big reported piece, and I would probably do them once every six weeks or something you know something really very okay. very thorough um okay. and on the ground so yes but I, but really i should be i should be writing constantly it's um you know it's a tough job <laughs> and do you uh, do you speak as well or i'm sure i know you've been on uh on t been interviewed before on, on tv and stuff or yeah i mean i i'll probably end up doing more of that i'm just i, I mean i've only actually had this job for just over a year okay so I'm re- relatively uh, relatively new to the game, so. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I I've done like a couple of panels and um, you know like radio and. Okay. 
and that kind of thing. So yeah, prob- probably I'll, I'll go down that route eventually just to, you know, wait, wait, wait to be asked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for your work. Again, I just, I so appreciate just your, your courage, your honesty, your, even here just talking to you, you, you know, your, your genuine love for people and your humility. And even though you're dealing with topics that can drive some people really mad and give the impression that, you're some feisty person that's just out to, you know, get people. It's not your intention at all. Not so I really appreciate that and and uh, your thoroughness. And again, the the article that uh, yeah, I would highly recommend. It's called the Trans Child as Experimental Guinea Pig. I mean, it's filled with a ton of research. I don't know. This, this must have taken you a long time to. It really, really did. Yeah. So thank you for noticing that it's got a lot of research because it it really was a yeah. <laughs> a painful process that one because I I didn't want to leave any any stone unturned you know I, I wanted to to write something that that somebody could um uh somebody could pick up and yeah and immediately you know just get a sense of what this was all about yeah so, well i mean yeah. this is the this is the world i've been in for the last several years so all this stuff is all the same stuff i'm reading and people i'm talking to and stuff so it's was, it was really exciting to see somebody in the same world so yeah great well it's a pleasure talking with you thanks so much yeah all right take care thanks so much bye